Hello and welcome to World History Encyclopedia's podcast, where we put your questions to archaeologists, historians and curators, our experts on history. I'm Fiona Richards and I'm delighted to be here today talking to Professor Ian Worthington. Ian is a professor of ancient history at Macquarie University in Sydney and before then he held the Curator's Distinguished Professor of History Chair at the University of Missouri in America. He actually hails from Northern England taking his first degrees at Hull and Durham before moving to Monash University in Australia to do his PhD. Ian specialises in Greek history and oratory. To date, he has written nine books and over a hundred articles and essays on Greek history, oratory, epigraphy and literature. He has also won a number of awards for research and teaching. Welcome, Ian. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And I'd like to start with an easy question today, and that's, was there something that sparked off your interest in Greek history? I was always interested in history. I mean, growing up, it's something that we studied at school uh, every year in, in England. And I wasn't going to do anything with history when I went to university, which was uh, donkey's years ago. I actually started reading theology. And then that didn't work out. So I thought, well, uh, what can I do instead? And I ended up in, in the classical studies department at my university. And that's where I decided that I really liked ancient history. I liked the Greeks more than the Romans. And as I'm always telling my students, you should do what really interests you because it's got to come from you. And half the battle is doing something that, that sometimes you, you have no idea that you're going to do a year or two earlier. But if something appeals, go for it. I did, and I'm still doing it. It's fascinating, really, because I was speaking to another interviewee of the podcast, and he went off to university to be a geologist, and then he ended up being an archaeologist. So it's really interesting that your your initial career path might be not the one that you thought it was it was actually going to be. I think so. Though, though geologists and archaeologists are people who are on their knees 24-7. Shall we jump in with a question, I think, from one of our WHE readers? As you specialise in Philip and Alexander, as well as many other things, I just wondered if there was something you could tell us about them that we might not know. Um, about Philip and Alexander, uh, th- mm. there's quite, I think Philip is probably the more interesting figure because every, everybody has heard of Alexander the Great. You can see that in the, the numerous references to him in, in modern pop culture. And for them to work, you have to have heard of, uh, about him. I mean, th- there was an Alexander the Great suite in uh, Trump Casino and Towers in Atlantic City, for example. And Iron Maiden have a fantastic album called Somewhere in Time, which was released in 1986. And they have a track on it called Alexander the Great, which if you listen to the lyrics is 100% accurate. So so everybody has sort of heard of Alexander the Great in some form or another. But what about about his dad? And it's really his father who is responsible for Alexander becoming great. And so I was always intrigued by Philip, and and that's why I started working on him, uh, because he was always in the periphery, he was always in the shadow of his more famous son. And our ancient writers were more interested in Alexander, because here's a young man who marched thousands of miles, defeated superior numbers in battles, thought he was a god, died when he was young, all this sort of stuff. And poor old dad gets marginalized. And so I suppose what do what do we not know as much about Philip is the fact that he turned Macedonia around. Macedonia was simply a, a periphery on the, the Greek world when Philip assumed the throne. And by the end of his reign, 20 odd years later, he turned it into a superpower. He had resurrected an army. In fact, he created an army. 
that was second to none and, and remained so until the Roman Legion came along. And so it was really Philip who laid the groundwork for Alexander's successes. It was also Philip who laid the plans to invade Asia. People tend to think that, okay, Alexander went across and toppled the Persian Empire and let's make a movie about this and it must have been his plan. But it wasn't his plan, it was Philip's plan. And so in answering that question, I would say that the people need to focus more attention on Philip. We we need to, to know more about him in order to appreciate what he did and what he enabled Alexander to do. And Alexander certainly would not have become as great as he did without what, what his father achieved. So in that respect, what do we not know as much about Philip is, is what he did for Alexander. And that's what I've tried to do in my work is to bring him center stage in Greek history. I think his greater than Alexander, but perhaps that's something for another time. In terms of what, what we don't know about Alexander, there's a ton of stuff we don't know, obviously, because our sources are limited. And unfortunately, we're dealing with Alexander of legend. We're not dealing with a historical king. We're, we're dealing with the one who's come down to us through various myths and legends throughout the centuries. So trying to get to the historical Alexander uh, is very, very difficult. And so what do we not know about Alexander? We don't know an awful lot about him as a historical figure. We have all these legends about him and they're not all true. And so trying to sift through all that is very, very difficult. What we do know is that he was a strategic genius. He was a brilliant leader of men. And when it comes to this, perhaps what people don't realize that is that he really took time to, to listen to his soldiers after battles. He visited them all. He he listened to uh, the ones who had been wounded. He listened to their war exploits, some, uh, their battle exploits, sometimes as they lay dying. And he really identified himself with, with the men. I mean, it's tremendous leadership. And we hear about these great battles and how he'd ride up and down the line beforehand, exhorting his men to fight and what have you. But you don't always hear about what happened after the battle. I mean, did he just go to the tent and start drinking? Did he put his feet up and say, you know, look, right, let's let's watch Watch, you know, married at first sight. Uh, no, he took his time to visit uh, the battle wounded. He listened to all those stories. He, he must have heard the same thing time and time again. But that's something that resonated with his men, and it really showed how he worked to make himself one of them. And so, how he was admired for so long until finally he lost touch with the rank and file of his men. They mutinied on him. And then it's a, a spiral downhill after that. So if he had been so in touch with his men, how did he then suddenly lose touch with them that they wanted to rebel? I think it's because the further east he went, uh, the more he started to become like a, like the Persian king as opposed to a Macedonian warrior king. He married, for example, Roxanne of Bactria, uh, which is northern Afghanistan now, and his men were not happy at that. This was, a, this was an interracial marriage, and it meant that the, the children, their sons especially, who would be the next, the next king, were never going to be true Macedonians again. He started to think of himself as a god. I think he, he generally did have pretensions to personal divinity. He did a ton of stuff that, that his men thought our king and general shouldn't be doing that. And in particular, the further east he went, the more he started to make it his own campaign. Uh, there never seemed to be an exit plan. There never seemed to be a strategy. When, when he first invaded Asia, it was to topple the Persian Empire. It was revenge. 
for what the Greeks had suffered during the Persian Wars. And he did that. He 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 ended the Achaemenid dynasty. He he got the revenge that that he set out to do. And at that point, when you've achieved your goal, you go home. And his men thought they were going to go home. I mean, they were packing their suitcases. They were getting ready to go home. And they said, no, we're going to keep going. And he probably wanted to go as far east as the Ganges, actually. But the the further east he uh, further east he marched, the more casualties there were, the more fights there were when they, it was needless, the more men died, the more cost to to lives and 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 monetary resources and things. And it became a personal campaign. And when when you're you are the king and the general, and you are putting your men's lives at risk for your personal glory, then that's a massive flaw, and that's something that uh, that his men saw and didn't like. And it's, what's interesting is that after Alexander died and his empire was carved up by his senior staff, they went to some lengths to make sure they didn't do the same things as Alexander did. In other words, they remained true to what a Macedonian warrior king was supposed to be. So it's really interesting when you look at Ptolemy, who founded the Ptolemaic dynasty, Seleucus, who founded uh, the Seleucid in Syria, and so on and so forth, uh, that they stay Macedonian. They stay what what their men wanted. They don't have pretensions to personal divinity. They don't wage wars for their own personal ends. And, and as a result, they, they don't face any insurrection. Alexander as a man has a lot of flaws. And this is a problem when you're looking at Alexander, is that if he'd, if he'd just, as I've, as I've said before, if he'd just been a general and there's somebody else had been king, then I, I'd be really happy with calling him great and and we, we would all be we wouldn't be talking about this now. But he wasn't just a general, he was also a king. That meant he was a diplomat, a statesman, a leader of men. Uh, he had a kingdom to look after. And he neglected that kingdom. So when you start looking at Alexander as King Alexander, it's a very, very different person emerges from Alexander the Great. And that's why I say when we look at Philip, Philip, who never neglected his kingdom and always uh, ensured that uh, he was firmly in control of things, didn't face any insurrections. He, he probably, as a king of Macedonia, was, was greater than Alexander. It's fascinating, Ian, because I suppose it's a real case of, you know, all that power going to someone's head. And it's, it's, I don't know if it's a rumour or if it's actually true these days, but he was supposed to have killed his father, wasn't he? Alexander was supposed to have killed Philip. Yeah. Is that right? Well, it probably he and his mother probably were part of a conspiracy. I mean, this is it, it's maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. There are some ancient writers who say that he was implicated in a conspiracy to assassinate Philip. I mean, we know that Philip was murdered. That's the easy part. The hard part is why was he murdered? And and there are two different traditions. One, um, the official reason that Alexander himself gave out, and that is that Philip was assassinated by a jealous ex-lover. So. So therefore it was personal or the other reason is a conspiracy to to kill philip that was perhaps orchestrated by alexander's mother philip's fourth wife olympias to bump him off so that alexander could become king you know if we can ever have a seance and conjure up alexander and say well tell us about it maybe just maybe we'll have the answer but it, it is intriguing that that half a dozen years later 
when Alexander's in Egypt, he visits the Oracle of Zeus Ammon in the oasis of Siwa, which is in the Libyan desert. Uh, and he goes there so that the priest can say, yes, you're the son of Zeus, so you're a living son of God, uh, which is what he wanted to hear. But one of the questions uh, he put to the priest was, "Was all the, have all the murderers of my father been punished? And I find that a very interesting question because it's six years after the event. And I, I think it's a case of mud sticking. In other words, you know, it doesn't matter if you're acquitted of something in a law court even today you can be charged with a crime and acquitted but people still think that maybe you got away with it that maybe you pulled a fast one and that you are guilty after all you kind of wonder if there were if there were because you know factions at the macedonian court that there were other noblemen who were opposed to alexander who thought he had something to do with the murderer's father and the only way to clear that up was by having the God himself say, yep, everybody's been punished. And that apparently was what the priest at sea was said. He said, yes, everyone who had anything to do with the murder of your father, everyone has been punished. So that means that Alexander couldn't have had anything to do with his father's murder because, hey, he's not been punished. So it's a very neat way of silencing any more suspicion uh, because you don't want to argue with a god because that can get you into all sorts of hot water. I like the fact that we're going to champion Philip. I think I think there's been too much on Alexander. Philip definitely needs champion. He's, he's one of my uh, close friends and it would be, you, you often think about, well, if you, if you could have a, a reserve a table at the pub, who are you going to have sitting around it? And he would definitely be somebody I would want there. What is also nice with the way he operates is that at the end of the evening, he would excuse himself to the bathroom, he'd be out the window and he'd stiff you for the bill, but you'd <laughs> still want to go drinking with him the next night. He was is that sort of charismatic person, I think. Oh, fantastic. And I, I should know this, but we, we have Philip's burial, don't we? Does, am I right in thinking he had some really gorgeous grave objects in there? So there's a lot of bling? Absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, the, the answer is actually yes and no. The Macedonians were, were in, amazingly cultured, just as much as the Greeks. Uh, they produced some wonderful artwork, mosaics, tomb paintings, gold and silver uh, jewelry and goblets and things like that and philip's tomb had an awful lot of these things in it which just which just really goes to show that when when the greeks talk about them as barbarians they they don't mean anything to do with their culture because we with mosaics for example we tend to think that the the romans produced the best mosaics but the romans wouldn't have got anywhere without the macedonians first but philip's tomb is probably that at in the modern hamlet of Vagina, the ancient Agai. There is, of course, some controversy about whether this tomb, which was discovered in 1977, is actually Philip's. But honestly, uh, you would, I don't know, you, you, you'd have to be several sandwiches short of a picnic to say it's not Philip, because the, the evidence is, is just about overwhelming, and not just literary evidence, but also forensic. The, the, the bones that were found in there have been tested and shown that they're consistent with the, with the way that his corpse was handled when he, when he was killed. And so it's very likely that, that this is the tomb uh, of Philip II. In there, we have these uh, amazing grave goods. We have uh, portraits of him and Alexander. We have his arms and armor. And they're all displayed in the, the museum at Virginia, which is part of the tomb. I mean, it's the most impressive museum you can ever go into. In the, in the 270s BC, the Galatians from, from the north were invading. And this was a royal complex at Virginia, the ancient Agai. And so 
people didn't want the, the graves of the kings there plundered, so they covered them with earth and they formed a tumulus. And the Galatians kept on going, and so they, they didn't plunder Philip's tomb, at least. And over the centuries, people forgot what was there. And so it was the British historian Nicholas Hammond, who's one of my heroes, who said, you know, I, I think that tumulus might hide something. Uh, and he persuaded Madalise Andronikos to dig there. Andronicus started digging, found the tomb, and the rest is history, as they say. And and the, the tumulus there that they have at Vagina now, that, that's actually a museum. So you walk in down, uh, down these tunnels into the tumulus, so to speak, and, and at one end is, is, the, is the passageway down to Philip's tomb. All of, all of the artifacts are displayed in a sort of open plan environment. It's the most amazing feeling you can have. Everybody talks about going to Greece and, you know, let's, do, let's, go to, let's go to Delphi, let's go to Athens, let's go to Olympia. And I say, yeah, definitely go to those places, but then head north. Go up to Thessaloniki, catch a bus to ancient Pella, the capital of Macedonia, or to Vagina, uh, and you'll be absolutely gobsmacked by the sights up there. And there's not as many people that go up there because they're off the beaten track. And far more importantly is the pastry shops are much better up there. Very important. It's really good to know your way around where all the best pastry shops are in the world. And sorry, just to bring you back to Alexander, because we're not liking him so much anymore, Ian. But um, but we, we're not so sure where he's buried, because it's either, is it in Alexandra in Egypt or Greece? They haven't actually found his grave, have they? Am I right? His grave hasn't been found, but it, it, it has to be Alexandria. I, I mean, we know that when Alexander died, it was in Babylon. It was between 4 and 5 p.m. on, on June the 11th 323 BC people have actually worked that out the idea was that he would be transported back to Agai the modern Vagina which I've just been talking about so he'd be transported back to to Macedonia and there he would be buried in the royal graves in the structure in the royal burial complex his body was embalmed which is unusual but that's because it's going to have to survive that very long distance from from Babylon to, to northern Greece and uh, this very elaborate um uh, funeral wagon was built. It's supposed to have taken two years. And the, it was the first carriage, by the way, that had shock absorbers fitted. It, that's there's something that, you know, your question about, tell me about Alexander, something we don't know. Well, his his funeral cortege was the first vehicle with a with shock absorbers. How about that? I'm, I'm not making this up, you know, it's true. <laughs> anyway, it eventually sets off 321. Ptolemy by then is established in, in Egypt and he swoops in and kidnaps the corpse of Alexander and takes it to Egypt. And this was part of his way of gaining an advantage over his competitors, the other members of Alexander's senior staff that had carved up his empire and were then at war with each other for a bigger slice of that empire. So whoever had uh, the, the body of Alexander had a lot of clout in those wars. And we know that, uh, that Ptolemy took it to Alexandria when he moved there. He, he had the city built. Alexander planned it, but it was really only going to be a town. It, it was a trading colony, really. It was Ptolemy who really turned it into the city of the Hellenistic period. And it was Ptolemy who started the museum and the library there. But we know that he had Alexander buried there. We know that, that centuries later, Augustus, the first Roman emperor, visited Alexandria. 
and wanted to see the tomb of Alexander. Uh, he was taken to it. There's that famous story where they said, do you want to see the tomb of the tombs of the pharaohs? And Augustus said, no, I want to see the tomb of a king. So that's the, the law of Alexander 300 years later. The story goes that Augustus leant forward to kiss Alexander's cheek and snapped his nose off. So that's where you just look around and go and put the nose back on whistle and walk away with your hands in your pockets. But I mean, that's the, that's pretty much the last we hear about it. So as with everything, when Alexander died, uh, there has to be a theory that he was poisoned. So when, when you've got somebody who's so superhuman like Alexander was, no question about that, then, then you, start, you start attaching theories to him. You can have him dying a natural death. You can have him being buried in one place. You, you, want, you want to sort of keep the legend going. And so that's why Alexander ends up, at one stage, I think he's buried in Venice, isn't he, or something. Uh, and so that's why there's all these different things. He, he was probably, um, he was buried in Alexandria. Ptolemy built a, a, a mausoleum for him. Ptolemy also built, or had built, a, a tomb for, for the Ptolemies as well. So they were all together. And probably now Alexander's tomb is somewhere underwater, you know, where, where it used to be part of Alexandria. But you can concoct as many theories as you want, as many hypotheses, but that, that's probably where it is. Fantastic. We really need that time machine, don't we, to go back and, and be able to find it. We do need a time machine, but you want to be really careful if you go back and see Alexander, because once you cross him, you can never redeem yourself, as uh, all of those who perished uh, by his hands found out. So if you go back, make sure you know, you're know you wearing some uh, a heck of a lot of armour. No, I was just thinking we could just uh, wait till he's dead and then and then find out where his tomb, in, tomb is and then pop back to the future and dig it up. That, that's yeah, that's like, my that's use of the time machine. Underwater, though. Yeah, makes it a bit more difficult. So, yeah. so let's go to our first question from a WHE reader. And this comes from Alexei, who lives in St. Petersburg in Russia. And he asks, do you agree that Alexander's campaign to the east was actually a demographic disaster for Macedon? I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a disaster, no. Uh, in terms of the impact on the population, I mean, Alexander was in constant need of reinforcements when he was in Asia. His general he left behind called Antipater uh, did have to send out reinforcements, did have to keep sending out Macedonian soldiers. So there was an impact when it came to the population of Macedonia. There was certainly an impact in the fact that the Macedonians didn't see their king again. Once Alexander left for Asia in 334, he never returned because he died in Babylon. But there was no transplanting of the population as happened uh, under Philip. The kingdom continued to prosper. It was, a very, it was a very prosperous one. It had the strongest coinage in Europe. And again, that's thanks to, to Philip. And, and people did travel. And the Macedonians, of course, course were now at the center of an empire shall we say an international empire in a way that they weren't with philip because uh, philip himself never invaded asia he was assassinated before he could go across so i i wouldn't exactly say demographic disaster but certainly it had an, uh, a demographic impact great thank you another question actually jürgen asks are the ancient macedonians considered as greeks well, this of course is a really controversial question it's a very loaded one we can't say unequivocally, 100% yes. We can say 99.9% yes. And I certainly think they were. Most people think they were. But there's still an element that would say no. Uh, but we don't actually have any evidence. We don't have, for example, a Greek writer saying, oh, those people who live north of Mount Olympus, they're Greeks, you know. 
Now, if, if we had that, it would settle things immediately, but we don't. So we have to look at uh, what other evidence do we have? Because I often say to, to my students, what we have is important and what we don't have is also as important. Uh, so, for example, when we, when we look at, at, at literary evidence, we don't have a lot from Macedonia, but we have a lot of coins and we have a lot of inscriptions, epigraphical records attesting to treaties, letters, things like this. They are all in Greek. What we don't have is anything official like that in another language. And so what we don't have is evidence of a Macedonian language. Everything we have is Greek. We know, for example, that um, when envoys from the Macedonian king went to Greek cities, they didn't need interpreters. They were speaking Greek. And vice versa, when, when the Greeks went to Macedonia, they didn't need interpreters. Because we're told that, that peoples like the Thracians and the Scythians spoke a different language, but nobody talks about the Macedonians speaking a different language. We, we know, for example, that the, the toponyms are all Greek, that proper names are all Greek, that the that Macedonian religion is as close to Greek religion as you can get. The word Macedonians probably comes from the Greek word Macedones, which means highlanders, so that's another Greek word. So you see, when you start piling all these together, um, you can build up a very powerful picture that, they, that these guys are Greeks. Now, the Greeks did call them barbarians, and the Greeks called anybody who spoke a different language a barbarian simply because they weren't speaking Greek. Uh, so that, that would seem to suggest that the Macedonians had their own language. They, pro they, they probably didn't. What they did have would have, would have been a dialect. We know Alexander spoke it twice in his reign. And when you look at, at, at ancient Macedonia, you look at the number of different tribes living on its borders, you know, Illyrians, Peonians, uh, people of Epirus in the southwest, Thracians to the east. It's not a surprise that when you've got all those different people speaking a lot of different languages and dialects themselves, that this is going to have an impact on the Macedonians. So a dialect is not a language. Uh, the, if, if, there were, if there hadn't been Mount Olympus, we wouldn't be having this conversation now. It's simply the fact that Mount Olympus split Greece in half. Those to the north, Macedonia, those to the south, the Greeks. It's just a simple geographical barrier. Uh, if you move north of Mount Olympus, you would, you would be dealing with people who had some different social customs, admittedly from the Greek south of Olympus, but they're just as Greek. It's a bit like in England or in many countries, you know, you're, if you grew up in the north, you, you would have had a different accent, wouldn't you, to the people down south? So well, That's right. Um, I, mean, I did grow up in the north. Uh, and as you know, there, there's, that, uh, there's that, that phrase, isn't there, that civilization ends north of Watford Gap. Uh, and Watford Gap is 15 miles north of, in of London. But it is true. I mean, I know I grew up in the north and, and we weren't that far from Scotland, but there were certain... It, it wasn't just accent, but there were certain words that were different. I mean, I remember, you know, I, I had an aunt called Mavis, for example, and Mavis was also a, a dialect word that people use for, th for the bird, the thrush. So things like that. Yeah, so it's more than accent. It's more, it's more of a dialect because there were different accents in Greek as well. If somebody from Sparta went to Athens, they'd be speaking a different type of Greek. They'd have a different accent. Uh, people would understand them, but they would know that they were different.
And actually, this leads on well to another question that we had from one of our readers who asks, seeing as how Greek was the lingua franca of most of the world at one time, would the Grecians have viewed those foreigners as less barbaric by using it? That's a, that's a really good question. It's one of those questions where there, there isn't an easy answer, obviously, because we just don't know. I would suspect, uh, well, again, it depends what you mean by barbaric. You know, does that mean uncultured? in the sense of, of culture, in the sense of doing things that, that the West didn't do? Or does it simply, is it barbaric from Barbaros, the barbarian, being somebody who didn't speak Greek? You you think of people in Afghanistan, for example, who, who are very, very cultured. But when Alexander got there, they had customs which were abhorrent to him. The Bactrians, for example, used to put their elderly and very sick people out to be eaten by dogs. And he thought this was terrible and he banned it. And of course it is terrible. The dogs were kept specially to eat these people. We would call that a barbaric practice. But if, if a Bactrian learned Greek, for example, would, would a Greek from the West think more highly of that person? The chances are probably not because of where that person came from and, and perhaps very different customs and beliefs even if that person could speak Greek. And I, I think perhaps we, we might jump here to Ptolemaic Egypt, for example, where Ptolemy was very, very clever in making the Egyptians feel part of the country, which is pretty good, isn't it, <laughs> since it was their country. But he, he made sure that the Macedonians and the Greeks were always in control of things, and that included the bureaucracy, the administration. And if you wanted to, to be in the bureaucracy of your own country, you had to learn Greek. Even if you were an Egyptian who learned Greek, you were still looked down upon. So I think you know, the answer to that question is that the Greeks of the West would probably have still looked down their noses at these people, even in the Hellenistic period, which is what you're talking about, because that's where the word Hellenistic comes from, you know, the, the spread of Hellenization and the Greek language. Even in that period, there would still have been this big barrier between the Greeks of the West and then the peoples of the East, even if they spoke Greek. Brilliant. Thank you very much. I just wanted to turn now to Greek orators, because um, I personally am ashamed to say that I don't know very much about them at all. But I know that it was the subject, wasn't it, of your PhD thesis, and it's something now that you specialise in. So could you give us a little uh, sort of 101 on Greek orators, Ian? Because I did read that there's a list of 10 or something that comes from Athens, and they're the main ones. Is, is this right? Yeah, pretty much. There's what's called the canon of the 10 Attic orators. And this, this includes the works of, of 10 uh, classical orators who wrote speeches, political and forensic. Who and, and we have a ton of these speeches that have come down. We don't have all of them, but we have um, quite a lot of speeches that have come down to us by these 10 different orators. And uh, some of the famous names, of course, are Demosthenes, uh, Aeschines, Hyperides, these guys. And they're all living and working in Athens. The, the, the canon of the ten orators, though, was actually drawn up in Alexandria. It was drawn up by scribes at the, at the library there who were diligently copying every Greek work they came across. I mean, most of our texts today are copies of Greek originals. And somebody uh, sat down and said, well, I'm, I'm going to draw up a list of ten who I think are, are the best. Uh, now, there's actually more than 10. We, we, we've got works by 12 orators, just to complicate things. But there are the, the canon of the 10. Now, the fact that they, they're living and working in Athens doesn't mean they're Athenians. Some of them, uh, Lysias, for example, came from Syracuse. Dinarchus was from Corinth. But 
the attraction was it's, it's like going to a major city for a job. Athens was the was the epicenter in the classical world when it came to to culture, to advancing yourself as a job in a job and what have you. And so that attracted me. It was like if you wanted to, to study philosophy, you went to Paris in the Middle Ages. You know, if you wanted to go to law, you went to Bologna and things like that. And so Athens was this big draw card for, for many uh, intellectuals. And that also included those who wanted to go and study Greek rhetoric and also become an orator. So there were orators in every Greek city. We just don't have their works. We only have uh, the works of, of 10, 10 or 11, who happen to be living and working in Athens. So hundreds of, of orators, we just don't know, we don't know their names, we don't know anything about them, but every city had law courts. So that meant that there were people writing speeches for trials. Every city had a political system, so that meant there were, there were those writing speeches to give to political assemblies. And the other thing is, and this is worth thinking about, because everybody waxes lyrical uh, about uh, the museum and the library at Alexandria and, and how great it was, and, and oh, you know, fantastic that, that we have all these works, is the destruction, is the fact that, that somebody, for reasons why we don't know, but somebody sat down and said, you know what, I think this orator is better than that orator, so I'm going to keep his works. And if we, if we had all the works today, we might have a very different approach to some of the orators. You know, Demosthenes is universally applauded as, as the best orator. He is the supreme example of Greek prose composition style. But what if he's not? What if there's somebody who was better and, and the Alexandrian scholars didn't like that person for some reason and consigned him to oblivion? Think of those who wrote Greek tragedies. We've got Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides. But that would have been a hell of a lot more than just than three people writing tragedies. And they, they would be writing in every Greek city. But somebody said, well, I, I, I prefer Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides. What if they're not the best? And we have no way of assessing that because we only have a fraction of all of the ancient works that were written in the classical period. We only have a fraction of those. And because what survives are those copied by Alexandrian scholars. And so once you start consigning things to oblivion, you can, you can never compare and contrast. So when it comes to the orators, there must have been hundreds of these guys who were at work in the, in the hundreds of cities throughout the Greek world, including, of course, the Greek colonies in Sicily, in South Italy, in Asia Minor, in the North Aegean. And yet we only have speeches by 10 or 11 who happen to be working in Athens. That shows us, of course, the cultural and intellectual pull of Athens, but it also uh, shows us a dismal side, and that is the, this tiny fraction of the entire output. But the orators are important, but they're still alive today in many respects because uh, what they, uh, the rhetorical approaches they took to things are, are still echoed by uh, modern speech writers. It's interesting that the, the, uh, the Greeks uh, pioneered this genre called the epideictic style. Uh, and you have this thing called the epitaphios, which gives us our word epitaph. It's a funeral speech. It's something that is delivered on a very solemn occasion, and usually it's uh, it's at the end of every year of a war, and it's in honor of those who died in the war. And it's meant to exhort the people. It's meant to say, look, they died for a reason. They died so that democracy could continue. Uh, we won't forget them. Uh, we were we can live in the way we are. We can live under a democracy. We can we can enjoy our lifestyle today because of their sacrifice. And of course, this is exactly what you hear in speeches today. And 
The most famous ancient epitaphios funeral oration is that of Pericles at the end of the first year of the Peloponnesian War. And then if you read Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, it's all there. If you look at Bill Clinton's D-Day, uh, 50th anniversary of, the, of D-Day, 1994 speech, it's got the same stuff in there. Uh, Reagan and Bush on the Columbia and Challenger space shuttle disasters. So these speeches really do, do show us how the ancient world is very much alive and kicking today and how things really don't change when it comes to the political and emotional exploitation of rhetoric. It's fascinating and it's also really it's a really good lesson to remember that we only have a very small portion mm. of, of things that, are, that have come down to us that are, and there's so much more that hasn't. So it's a, it's a really good thing to remember, I think, as well. Talking of Pericles, we had a question from somebody in China who had asked, why is Pericles known as the father of democracy? But I think he's mixed him up with Solon, isn't he? I think so, yes. Pericles delivered a, a famous speech in which he, he talked about Athens being the school of Hellas, the school of Greece, and how uh, every every Greek city wanted to be a democracy like Athens. And so I think that that might be what the person's thinking of. But when, when it comes to democracy and father of democracy, that seems to imply that was there somebody who created democracy? And you know, how did democracy come about? This is something I, I do in my classes, is, is the, the things that we take for granted today, where did they come from and how did they come about? And, and there was a father of democracy, and this was a guy by the name of Solon, who in 594 BC introduced legislation that in, in effect abolished aristocratic monopoly of power and gave political power to the people. It, it took a few generations to kick in, but it did. And as a result of, of that, of a very simple reform on the part of this guy called Solon, who also introduced judicial legislation, which includes the right of appeal. So today, when you in court, when you lose your case and say, well, I'm going to appeal, well, that goes back to Solon. Because of what Solon did, that opened the gates, if you like, to other reformers after him, Fleissley's in 508, Ephialtes in 462, to finesse his legislation and introduce uh, what was called radical democracy, which is where the people were sovereign in the state. But yeah, this this goes back to, the, the father of democracy idea goes back to Solon, who, against a particular uh, social and uh, economic background, introduced this novel reform that basically gave people who had never had the right to vote before, never had the right to uh, to stand for political office, and yet were called citizens. It gave these people the chance to take part in political life. Where do you think that came from? Why do you think he championed that? What was happening at the time, uh, and again, this is Athens, you see how everything, I mean, in the ancient world, you know, if, if we didn't have archaeological evidence, we, we would only have information about Athens just about. So Solon was Athenian, and Athens at this time was in civil war, and it's where the people were rising up against the aristocratic ruling families, because the aristocrats were only looking after themselves. They didn't give a toss about the social and economic plight that, say, poor farmers were, were facing, farmers who were losing their lands, who were having to, to sell their families into slavery to try and get by. And the aristocrats just didn't care. They just wanted to stay in power. And so you started to get this groundswell of opposition. And this is also the period when, shall we say, the middle class, class is, is a bit anachronistic. I prefer stratum. When, when a middle class of society is starting to appear, and these are those who are wealthy enough to buy their own arms and armor, 
and they're called hoplites. And these hoplite soldiers will fight for the state and they'll put their lives on the line. And then when the battle's over, they go back home and they still have no political power because they're not aristocrats. So they start to say, you know, come on, if we're going to put our lives on the line, we want to have a say in how our city is run. And so all of a sudden, the social and economic grievances of the lowest classes, the farmers, etc., mesh with political grievances on the part of these hoplites. These are people who are wealthier, but they're not aristocrats. And so to avert civil war, to make sure that, that civil war didn't break out, though though it looks like it, it, it had, but that's by the by, the aristocrats actually turned to this guy called Solon and said, fix things. So what they wanted Solon to do, of course, was to wave a magic wand and restore the status quo. Well, Solon didn't. He actually robbed the aristocrats of their monopoly of power by giving political power to non-nobles. And so out of the social, economic, and political grievances, we have democracy born. And Solon, we have some fragments of his poetry. And Solon would never make it in politics today because he says in his poetry, I knew I was going to upset both sides. I know each side was going to be dissatisfied with me. But you know what? I did what I did in the best interests of the city. Can you imagine a politician today saying, you know, I'm going to introduce legislation. It's going to piss everyone out. I'm never going to get elected again, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's in the best interest of the country. I mean, I would vote for that person, but this is what Solon did. And as a result, it took a couple of generations, but eventually non-nobles who'd never had a share in political power before began to, to go to this political body called the Ecclesia, the Assembly, that debated all domestic and foreign policy. So they got to go to debates. They got to vote on domestic and foreign policy and eventually they were able to stand for political office. So within a few generations you have a very different political system in Athens and then of course other cities want that and voila democracy. And was I presume Solon was he an aristocrat as well? He was, but he was all he also seems to have been a merchant. He see he seems to have been trusted by both sides. And that's probably why they tapped him. So he was aristocratic by the looks of it, but he could also identify it's like Alexander. Yeah, he was the king. He was royalty, but he could identify himself also with the lowest soldier. And Solon seems to have been trusted by both sides, noble and non noble, to try and fix things. And so did he persuade his fellow aristocrats to to adopt this system because something had to change? Yeah, otherwise uh, there would have been civil war and the aristocrats were were probably being kicked out of Attica, kicked out of Athens completely. It is fascinating. I use that word a lot, but I do find it all very fascinating. And as you mentioned earlier, we obviously have quite a few legacies from ancient Greece. So I hesitate to ask you what you think the best one might be that we've inherited. Or maybe it's is it better to ask what the major ones are that we're still using today, like the right of appeal? That's wonderful to know that that goes back to the ancient Greek. Yeah, it, go, it goes back to this guy Solon again, who introduced some judicial legislation. The right of appeal, also third part appeal, where, where somebody could prosecute on behalf of another. That That's something we take for granted today. Then o- over the, the following decades, by 460, 
1962, when Effie when, uh, introduced radical democracy, by 462, trial by jury had been introduced. And that's again something we take for granted, you know, that we, we have a trial before our peers. This again is another Athenian invention. It's very hard to say, is there just one legacy? There isn't. We talk, we talk about Western civilization, and, and of course it's anchored in ancient Greece and Rome. And of course, if it hadn't been for the Greeks, there wouldn't have been the Romans, because the Romans basically pinched all of Greek civilization, apart from inventing the arch and cement. And so when you look at the ancient world, you, you see how much of our Western society and civilization is anchored in that. So there's really not just one thing. Uh, we, we can look at democracy, we can look at politics, we can look at law, we can also look at, at, at things like imperialism, at warfare. These are, these are all legacies, in a way. And so did things change hugely with the rise of the Roman Empire? Yeah, I mean, people who were who were independent got conquered. <laughs> so, so, and nobody likes to be conquered. I mean, things did change dramatically. I mean, the the Romans started off by conquering Italy, then they began to expand in the Western Mediterranean, then they got involved in the Eastern Mediterranean, in Greece, and the Near East, and then by the end of this Hellenistic period that we've been talking about in 30 BC, they finished off Egypt and then came to control, therefore, the whole of the Mediterranean and the Near East. And then, of course, the empire continues after that. So, so yeah, it's, it's a tremendous change. It's a tremendous change uh, also for the Greeks and for certain cities. I mean, if I can just put in a plug, there's a brilliant book that's just come out called uh, Athens After Empire, a history from Alexander the Great to the Emperor Hadrian. I think it's by some guy called Worthington. But it, but it looks at that, that 400, 500 year period of history as a continuum. It looks at how, how Athens changes and how and it tries to rebut the belief that there was a Romanization. There's a belief that because the Romans imposed some of the cultural aspects on the Greeks, because they funded building projects, because there was an imperial cult in many cities, that as a result, the Greeks the Greeks lost their sense of identity, their Greekness, shall we say, and that they became Romanized. Uh, I think that that's nonsense. And although there was a lot of Roman influence in Greek cities, especially Athens, the Greeks are holding their own because it's their culture uh, that, that has such an impact on the Romans that it actually led to the poet Horace talking about how captive Greece captured its rude conqueror. In other words, uh, the Romans might have conquered Greece, but in the end, the Greeks conquered the Romans because the Romans appropriated so much of, of, of Greek culture for their own culture, for their own intellectual movement, for their own political ends, that Roman Roman culture is anchored in Greek. Uh, so when we talk about did things change under the Roman Empire, obviously they did. People were living under Roman rule. But the other side of the coin is that things changed for the Romans as well. I mean, the Romans obviously had a culture before they started getting involved in Greece. But their culture, again, was based on their contacts with Greek cities in southern Italy and, and Sicily. So, in a way, the, the Romans might have been militarily conquering different lands, different peoples, but they were being conquered culturally at the same time. And who published your latest book then, Ian? Oh, that, that was Where o can we find it? That was Oxford University Press. You can find it on a website. And I've, uh, I've got a mortgage and two kids, so please buy it. I will look it up immediately as we say goodbye. Are you working on any new books at the moment? What's happening with you at the moment? Uh, actually, a couple of exciting endeavours. I'm finishing off a book at the moment on The Last Kings of Macedonia. 
So this is Philip V and Perseus, who are the last Antigonid kings. They're, they're the ones who fall to Rome. Just We've been talking about the, the rise of Roman imperialism in, the, in Greece. And, and Philip V and Perseus are the last two kings who, who really face off against the Romans, and they're defeated, and as a result of that, Rome conquers Greece. So I'm in the death throes of that, and they're really interesting figures. And again, like, like Philip II, Alexander's father, they, they need to be brought out more onto the center stage. Their, their reigns are often seen as a postscript to to classical history, to to Alexander and folks like that, and that's not the case at all. I mean, they, they were able to hold the might of Rome at bay for, for for decades, and so so that's quite exciting. And then another one I'm doing. This is a new venture. It's on Alexander the Great. It's on his leadership, but it's it's a it's a book uh, for Routledge, and it's with a, a U.S. Army combat vet who's now in military intelligence, uh, and also with the participation of General H.R. Uh, McMaster, who is U.S. Army retired now, but he was. Uh, I think his last official post was was Trump's national security advisor. And we're doing a book about, well, this is not the title, but it gets it over. It's called On Alexander's Leadership and Strategy, What the 21st Century Needs to Know. And it's looking at uh, the fact that that nowadays with with the rise of artificial intelligence, with uh, machine warfare, etc., that there's less need somehow for the human face of war, the diplomatic side, and we're arguing that that's that that's definitely not the case. There's even more the need for diplomacy and the human face as things get more machine denied, shall we say, and we- and weaponized and things. And we we use Alexander a lot uh, uh, as an example of that. And that, of course, Ale- you know, Alexander didn't have drones and laser laser seeking missiles. But he did have technology. The torsion catapult, for example, was de- was developed by his father's engineering corps. So there's still technology there. It's just different. But what we do see is, is in Alexander is when he's in the East, uh, the lessons we can learn about dealing with a multicultural subject population. How did he try to reconcile West and East? The, these are the, the problems, the issues that are facing makers of modern strategy today. And so that's bound up in this book as well but it's certainly making me lift my game because uh, you know you started off this chat by talking about me being in an armchair and here i and, and i still am and here i am writing with with a guy who has you know faced action in iraq and afghanistan he's the real thing he knows what he's talking about when it comes to warfare uh, and then he's also very very clever uh, and he's he's bringing in all this modern stuff as well so I'm learning a lot from him. I'm having to lift my game. I think this is going to be a really interesting book when it comes out. And uh, and again, it's going to show uh, how important the ancient world is as a model uh, for today and, and what we can learn from it. I'm a great believer in learning from history. Ian, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. I've enjoyed talking. Thank you very much for having me.